Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Quarter 4, 2020 AGS Management Limited Earnings Conference Call. My name is Jenny. I'll be your operator for today's call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session. During the question and answer session, if you have a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone phone. Please note that this conference is being recorded. I will now turn the call over to Adrian Basaraba. Mr. Basaraba, you may begin. Thank you, operator, and good morning, everyone. I'm Adrian Vassarabba, Senior Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of AGF Management Limited. Today, we will be discussing the financial results for the fourth quarter and fiscal 2020. Slides supporting today's call and webcast can be found in the Investor Relations section of AGF.com. Also speaking on the call today will be Kevin McCready, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer. For the question and answer period with investment analysts following the presentation, Judy Goldring, President and Head of Global Distribution, will also be available to address questions. Turning to slide four, I'll provide an agenda for today's call. We will discuss the highlights of the fourth quarter and fiscal 2020, provide an update on the key segments of our business, review our financial results, discuss our capital and liquidity position, and finally close by outlining our focus for 2021. After the prepared remarks, we'll be happy to take questions. With that, I will turn the call over to Kevin. Thank you, Adrian, and thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Over the last year, despite the volatility and uncertainty caused by COVID-19, we made significant progress against our strategy and stated goals. I'll begin with some of the highlights. We successfully monetized our interest in Smith & Williamson, a notable achievement given the market environment in the first half of 2020. The transaction generated gross cash proceeds of almost $300 million, which allowed us to fully repay our long-term debt and return $40 million to shareholders through a substantial issuer bid. With a strong balance sheet and liquidity, we are well positioned to reinvest in the business and pursue growth initiatives that will generate stable sources of earnings and cash flow. In line with that goal, we continue to develop our private alternatives business with several milestones achieved during the year. We established the AGF Alternatives Advisory Committee with industry veterans Ron Mock and Michael Latimer, in June, we announced the final closing of the Instar AGF Essential Infrastructure Fund II with approximately U.S. $1.2 billion in aggregate equity commitments. And in September, we expanded our partnership with SAF Group to enhance our private credit capabilities. We will be launching several innovative private credit products in the coming months, which Adrian will discuss in a moment. We established AGF Wave Asset Management, a new joint venture with Wave front global asset management to deliver our investment capabilities to China and South Korea. We continue to drive the firm towards sustainable organic growth. Our mutual fund business moved into positive net sales and our institutional business has several large prospects in the pipeline. In addition, AGF and our funds were recognized with multiple awards during the year. AGF was named Employer of Choice, Silver Award at the Wealth Professional Awards in September, and several of our funds received fund grade A plus and LIPRA fund awards. We advanced our strategic priorities while maintaining expense discipline. SGNA for 2020 is $5 million lower than our guidance of $180 million. 
excluding Smith and Williamson, we reported adjusted diluted earnings per share of 42 cents for the year, which is 5% better than the prior year on a comparable basis. The board confirmed a quarterly dividend of 8 cents per share for the fourth quarter. And starting on slide six, we'll provide updates on our business performance. On this slide, we break down our total AUM in the categories disclosed in our MDNA and show comparisons to the prior year. AUM ended the quarter at 38.8 billion. Mutual fund AUM increased by 5%. I'll provide more color on our fund business in a moment. Institutional, sub-advisory, and ETF AUM decreased compared to prior year, mainly due to the redemptions that we disclosed in previous quarters. First Q3, AUM increased by 4%. As indicated on the previous earnings call, we received an allocation of approximately $125 million from an existing strategic partner. Looking ahead, the committed pipeline for institutional and sub-advisory is currently negative $270 million. We have some committed redemptions from a value tilting strategy that is currently out of favor with investors. We believe that value investing may be more rewarding for patient investors over the coming years. While we are disappointed with the committed redemptions, we are seeing positive sales momentum across several key strategies. In the U.S., a small institutional mandate funded in January, and we are currently in the final stages of onboarding two large institutional clients who have selected four of our global equity investment strategies for sub-advisory and SMA mandates. While the AUM growth from these mandates will occur gradually over time, these wins demonstrate that our recent investments in the U.S. are starting to pay dividends. We are seeing strong interest in our global sustainable growth equity strategy, which is one of the longest tenured in Canada and has outperformed the benchmark by almost 500 basis points on a one three- and five-year basis. RFP and RFI activity for this strategy has been strong, which bodes well for future sales. Given the increased interest we're seeing across multiple strategies and jurisdictions, we are confident about our ability to generate sales within the institutional segment. For our ETF business, our suite of Canadian and U.S. exchange-listed funds has seen strong growth over the past year. AGF was recently named Best Smart Beta Equity ETF Issuer at the 2020 ETF Express U.S. Awards, which reflects our strength in factor-based investing. In October, we launched two actively managed ETFs in Canada as we move to become increasingly vehicle agnostic. AGF Global Sustainable Growth Equity ETF, which trades under the ticker symbol AGSG, is the ETF version of our Global Sustainable Growth Equity Strategy, which we just highlighted. AGF Global Opportunities Bond ETF, which trades under the ticker symbol AGLB, is a newly actively managed global fixed income strategy. We anticipate strong flows into these products given the growing demand for sustainable investing and fixed income. Our private alternatives AUM was $2.8 billion, which is a solid progress towards our goal of reaching $5 billion by 2022. Turning to slide 7, I'll provide some detail on the mutual fund business. After a difficult spring season, the Canadian mutual fund industry continued its trajectory of improvement, reporting net sales of $11 billion during our latest fiscal quarter. AGF's mutual fund business reported net sales of $88 million for the quarter, excluding net flows from institutional clients invested in mutual funds, Net sales were $66 million compared to net redemptions of $181 million in Q4 of last year. AGF sales improvement has outpaced that of the industry. 
gross new money flowing into our long-term funds increased 37% year-over-year compared to a 21% increase for the industry. The positive sales momentum has continued into Q1, and we are seeing strong inflows across multiple categories, which is encouraging. As investors continue to move away from domestic strategies toward global and international opportunities, AGF is well positioned to capture this trend. Before I return the call back to Adrian, I want to give a quick update on performance. AGF measures mutual fund performance by comparing gross returns before fees relative to peers within the same category, with first percentile being best possible performance. We target an average percentile ranking versus peers of 50% over a one-year period and 40% over three years. Performance was stable over the last quarter. Average percentile ranking over the past one and three years was 41% and 53% respectively at the end of Q4, compared to 42% and 51% respectively at the end of Q3. A number of our global and fixed income strategies continue to outperform versus peers. In November, AGF U.S. Small Mid-Cap Fund and AGF Global Convertible Bond Fund won Lipper Fund Awards for three- and five-year performance. This is the second year in a row that the AGF U.S. Small Mid-Cap Fund has received this honor. With that, I will turn the call back over to Adrian. Thank you, Kevin. We made a lot of progress in 2020 to position ourselves for profitable growth in coming years. We continue to exercise expense discipline, with SG&A coming in $5 million lower than our initial guidance and lower than prior year. Our retail line of business is driving towards sustainable organic growth, and we made further inroads with our private alternatives business. In September, we expanded our partnership with Soft Group to enhance our private credit capabilities while also securing the opportunity to increase our ownership in SAF over time. Our expanded partnership marks an important step towards our goal of reaching $5 billion in private alternatives AUM by 2022, and it's consistent with our objective to generate more sustainable, recurring management fee earnings. As Kevin mentioned earlier, together with SAF Group, we'll be launching several innovative credit products in 2021. In coming months, we will launch a private credit strategy aimed at institutional and high net worth investors, followed closely by a trust fund targeted at retail investors the retail fund will have more liquidity and enhanced redemption privileges. These products will allow us to meet the needs of our clients who are demanding access to uncorrelated asset classes in the face of changing market dynamics. Moving on, slide eight reflects a summary of our financial results for the fourth quarter with sequential quarter and year-over-year comparisons. For ease of comparison, we've included adjusted numbers and restated prior period results for IFRS 16 throughout the remainder of this presentation. Excluding Smith & Williamson, from current and prior period results, even before commissions for the current quarter is $31.6 million, which is $10.3 million higher than Q3 2020. The improvement is due to favorable AUM, timing of SG&A, and higher earnings from our private alternative segment, which is becoming a bigger portion of our business. Our private alternatives business contributed EBITDA of $7.1 million this quarter. This includes LP earnings of $5.5 million and carried interest revenue of $1 million as one of our private alternatives funds exceeding its performance threshold. As we continue to grow our private alternatives platform, management fee profits and earnings from our LP investments will become more consistent and predictable. Before I leave the slide, I'll address our SG&A guidance. <clears throat> over the last three years, we've reduced our expense base by over $20 million. Our achievement and efficiency has come at a time 
when we were also investing a significant amount of resources to new emerging growth areas, including private alternatives, global and quantitative investing, and ETFs. Today, we're announcing SG&A guidance of $180 million for 2021. This assumes a return to net sales for our retail organization. And this is flat compared to our original guidance for 2020, and it assumes limited travel and entertainment for most of 2021. Before I leave this, I'll remind you, our SG&A guidance does not include any acquisitions, and it assumes performance at its current trajectory. Further improvement in sales or investment performance could result in higher variable compensation expenses. Turning to slide nine, I'll walk you through the yield on our business in terms of basis points. This slide shows our revenue, operating expenses, and EBITDA before commissions as a percentage of average AUM on the current quarter as well as the trailing 12-month view. Note that AUM and related results from Smith & Williamson, private alternatives business, one-time items, and other income are excluded. The Q4 revenue yield is 114 basis points. That's three basis points higher than the trailing 12 months. As you can see on the slide, the increase is mainly due to a shift towards our mutual fund products with relatively higher fees. Q4 SG&A as a percentage of AUM was 50 basis points, which is one basis point lower compared to the trailing 12 months. This resulted in EBITDA yield of 28 basis points compared to 25 basis points in the trailing 12 months. Returning to slide 10, I'll discuss free cash flow and capital uses. This slide represents the last five quarters of consolidated free cash flow on a trailing 12-month basis as shown by the orange bars on the chart. The black line represents the percentage of free cash flow that was paid out as a dividend. Our trailing 12-month free cash flow was $46 million, and our dividend payout ratio is 53%. Including dividends, the NCIB and the SIB, we have returned $70 million to shareholders in the past year. The sale of Smith & Williamson has provided additional capital flexibility and further strengthened our balance sheet. As of November the 30th, we have cash of $94 million, short and long-term investments of $170 million, and no debt. The strength of our balance sheet allows us to pursue initiatives that will increase our earnings and free cash flow. Redeploying this excess capital is a key strategic priority. Turning to slide 11, I will turn it over to Kevin to wrap up today's call. Thanks, Adrian. Despite the challenges posed by COVID-19, we made substantial progress against our stated objectives in 2020. With the sale of Smith & Williamson now complete, we have repaid our long-term debt, returned $40 million to our shareholders through the SIB, and are well positioned to pursue growth initiatives. We continue to develop our private alternatives business with multiple milestones achieved during the year. Our retail distribution team closed the year with positive sales momentum that has carried into the new year. We maintain expense discipline while investing in new areas of growth. Along those lines, I'd like to reiterate our strategic priorities, which are to deliver consistent and repeatable investment performance, drive the organization to sustainable net inflows, position the firm to reach $5 billion in alternative assets by 2022, and meet our expense guidance while continuing to invest in key growth areas. I want to thank everyone on the AGF team for all of their hard work in these challenging times. We will now take your questions. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. If you have a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone phone. If you wish to be removed from the queue, please press the pound sign or the hash key. If you're using a speakerphone, you may need to pick up the handset first before pressing the numbers. Once again, if you have a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone phone. And our first question comes from Gary Hall from Desjardins Capital. Please go ahead. 
Thanks. Good morning. Uh, first questions on, on the net flows, I guess, both from retail and institutional side. Um, just wondering if you can provide a bit more color on the retail flows. I know you provided it quantitatively what that was uh, first couple of weeks of December. Just wondering if you have a more up-to-date number uh, so far in, in Q1. And then as well on the institutional side, um, just want to clarify the 270, um, Kevin, that you mentioned, was that something that's in, in Q1? Um, just want to, to, to double-check that, please. Sure. Why, why don't I start, uh, Gary, and then I'll pass it to, uh, to Kevin to elaborate on the institutional flows. Um, in terms of the retail, we continue to see strong flows across a broad range of the funds, which is uh, very encouraging. As you noted, we did pre-release numbers so that at the end of December 9th, we showed uh, 2020, we showed 15 million in net sales. To the end of December, we saw 58 million in net sales. And then uh, for January 1 to end of day yesterday, we've seen flows of net positive 74 million. So for AGF fiscal year to date, uh, we are seeing 132 million in net sales. I think what we're looking to uh, is just seeing the year-over-year -year improvement uh, which is close to 450 million. And uh, when we look at some of these other interesting metrics, like gross sales overall, we're up 85%. And uh, when we look at the gross new money flows, which as you know is uh, sales excluding transfers within a complex, AGF is outpacing industry by more than two times at this point. So we're really encouraged by what we're seeing. Yeah, and Gary, uh, Kevin on the second question on uh, the, um, the outflow. You know, we do have a couple of strategies. We have a, a number of strategies that are fundamentally based that actually have valuation methodologies inherent in them. Um, and as you saw over the last few years, um, those strategies, whether they be core but have more tilt to a valuation methodology, well underperformed the pure growth market that we saw. You know, interestingly, at, at its peak last year, growth uh, generically over value was almost a 40% spread difference. Uh, you saw that start to reverse in September when the market started to broaden out, and that strategy has actually done quite well since then, actually since mid-year. Um, having said that, um, when you underperform because of your style, uh, some investors are going to want to basically um, change gears. And so we know that. Um, we've seen some redemptions there. Um, but the process has been one that we've had around in the manager for um, probably 20-plus years. And so we're pretty confident um, that we can weather that. Value, we think, is probably a place that will start to gain more traction. So we like having it in the mix, but we know that some clients are going to, um, you know, weary of some style variances when they get to be that wide, as we saw last year. Okay, Kevin, is that going to come out in Q1, or is that going to be later in the year? That's going to be Q1. Okay. And then, Judy, as a follow-up, um, can you elaborate where, you know, you're seeing the flows come from in terms of channel? Is it some of your strategic partners, or is it elsewhere? Um, just a bit more color would be helpful. Sure. I mean, what we um, are, are encouraged about is the fact that it is really across a number of uh, all of our different channels. So we're seeing the improvement both MFDA and IROC, and um, you know the advisor activity and uh, engagement with our sales team has been and remains to be extremely high. So uh, not only just strategic partners, but also as I say, advisors across both MFDA and IROC channels. Yeah, Gary, okay. just one of the things, it's Kevin, if I can add on that. If you, if you go back to page 7 on the deck that we presented for the earnings and the, the chart on the right-hand side, and if you were just kind of to, to pencil in where we are year-to-date just in this first one-and-a-half months, you, you can see that the, the, the pattern has not been haphazard. It's been a pretty logical step function upward, so that gives us some confidence on the momentum. Okay, that's, uh, that, that's helpful. 
And then my second question, uh, maybe for Adrian, uh, notice that the DSG expense line was a bit lower. Uh, any color on that in the quarter? Is it just a higher sales mix into non-DSC funds? Like, what's uh, anything that's driving that? Yeah, thanks for the question, Gary. Um, yeah, that's absolutely what's happening because of the you know diversity of sales. We are seeing DSC as a percentage of gross sales decline. So, just to give you, you know, a little bit of context around that, uh, in 2019, our DSC sales were about 43%. Uh, for the full year 2020. Uh, DSC sales were about 40% of our gross sales. And for Q4 2020, they fell down to 33%. So um, another kind of you know positive trend, uh, similar to the comment that Kevin made, you can kind of see that progression over time. So that leads us to believe that that's kind of a sustainable um, trend line there in terms of a decreased amount of DSC sales as a percentage of our overall gross sales, which, which I think is encouraging. Okay. Yeah, great. Adrian's referencing that as, as a, a total uh, mutual fund sales. If you think about the company, because the fact that funds are, you know, roughly half, it's a much lower number. Yeah. And then maybe just the last question, Kevin. Cash balance, 94 million, like you mentioned. Can you walk us through kind of use the capital priorities for the next 12 to 18 months? I guess related to this, you know, how much is earmarked for for the private outside, um, including the new fund launches? Adrian mentioned. And you sound pretty confident in hitting the uh, the five billion over the next uh, couple of years. Yeah, no, I mean, Gary, I mean, we're happy with the strength of our balance sheet. You know, it's nice to sit here with a net cash positive. Um, we've returned, as I think Adrian said in his comments, not just the forty million in the SIB, but when you add up the NCIB earlier in the year and the dividends, probably seventy million to shareholders. So as we go forward, I think a balanced approach is still appropriate. So we'll be opportunistic on the NCIB. Um, but you know we'll we'll look to return capital to shareholders, but most of it's going to go back to both one growing uh, the organic parts of our business as, as we're seeing. How do we bolster that? But two, probably the bulk of it will go into that alternatives plank where we see opportunities because of the fact that investor appetites for alternatives are growing. Um, we, we can take a spectrum approach to it, meaning liquid alternatives at one end, private alternatives at the other, and we can use that broad distribution base that we have, which is just retail for the liquid side maybe the larger IROC books for more OM, and then really for our institutional family office, something that's a hybrid or even um, more private. So I, I think, you know, using the capital and putting it back into that, um, that plank is probably the highest growth opportunity we have. I think that the, the time frame, as I've said, probably something that looks like 18 to 24 months. We want to be disciplined about it, uh, thoughtful. But in terms of targeting a specific dollar amount to each yet, we haven't gone that far in terms of giving that out yet. Uh, that's helpful. That's it for me. Thank you. And our next question comes from Graham Writing from TD Securities. Please go ahead. Hi. Good morning. Um, so you, you mentioned that there's some institutional value bet strategies that <clears throat> could be uh, redeeming in Q1. But I think you also mentioned you're onboarding some uh, some mandates in the U.S. Did you quantify that? If so, I missed it. Could you? Uh, Get some color on what the what the offset is. Yeah, so we're we're looking at about an offset um, over the next few quarters, somewhere between one and two hundred million at the beginning. Uh, these are build out mandates on a platform, so as the flows increase over time, we would expect to see uh, a cumulative growth of assets on on those particular mandates. But uh, as I say, in the short run, the next couple quarters, we'd expect um, a couple hundred million. 
Got it. And did you mention what the redemptions that are coming through on the on the value strategies are? Uh, we we did. I think the on the earlier comments it was about 270 uh, million is the committed negative pipeline right now. Okay. Yeah, and, and Graham, with Kevin, you know, I, I just would reiterate, um, it's a strategy that is, as the as the markets have grown growth here. It, well, it's a core strategy. Um, it, it it finds the index getting to tip more to the right towards growth. And you know, and it does use a disciplined approach to thinking about how to value companies. So obviously, it's been out of favor, but it's not. I wouldn't classify it as some people think of deep value or value. Okay. Got it. Okay. Um, and then I think you mentioned previously that you've got a 15 million dollar commitment to seed some of these uh, new private credit funds with the SAF group. Uh, like, does that capture everything that you're planning to do with them? Because I think you mentioned you know you're focusing on a few different. Uh, channels like you know institutional high net worth and also retail or you know is there uh, is the capital required to get all those funds and, and channels going is it higher than the 50 billion yeah I mean um, I'll, I'll start maybe I'll get Adrian to follow but on that first fund we're probably looking at something that's a little, little lower than 15 that that should get that off the ground and as we've talked before um, you know as you see successive funds with a manager you, you tend to have to put in less and less and less um, so the first fund is always the most, the second fund's a lot less, the third fund's much more or less, uh, if that's a word. Um, and, but you'll see us recycling capital from other funds over time. So, um, and I think, Adrian, maybe you want to add some color to this, but we don't see it as um, a large incremental drive over what we have told you guys in the past. But, but as we launch further funds with SAF, we should be monetizing assets from prior funds um, to seed some of those funds. So it's not as if this is an unending drain on capital to get this going. Yeah, uh, agreed. It's Adrian. That's uh, that's precisely it. Obviously, if we start to build, you know, new types of capabilities, that might require a bit more capital. But um, you know, with the with our the business kind of more seasoned, uh, we're recycling a lot of capital. And, and as Kevin mentioned, successive funds, it's kind of an industry thing. Uh, they do require less uh, less seed capital. Okay, understood. Have you? Um... This would be my last question on that, but did, have you, do you have a target for what you're trying to raise through these new funds with the SAF group? Hey, Graham, it's Adrian. Yeah, so we, we try not to give uh, out, you know, fund by fund targets because it's a little bit uh, too detailed, but we do have that $5 billion uh, target out by uh, 2022. And so that's kind of how we look at it is we set an overall target and then we, we've got a, a variety of different kind of strategies to, to try to reach that target. Okay. Uh, that's it for me. Thank you. And our next question comes from Nick Creeby from CIBC. Please go ahead. Okay, thanks. Uh, good morning. Um, so with the Smith & Williamson transaction complete, uh, you've got no debt, and you also have some flexibility to relever as well as necessary. In that context, I'm wondering what your appetite for M&A might look like. And maybe the way that I'll ask is whether that's something you would just evaluate in normal course or, or whether M&A might be something that you're more inclined to proactively seek out um, at this point? Yeah, so Nick, it's, uh, it's Kevin. You know, we, as I said, we like the balance sheet the way it is, um, but there's an appropriate amount of leverage that a company should have. Um, over time, as we see opportunities that exceed our cost of capital, um, probably in the alternative space, um, you'll see us relever the company back up to one to one and a half times, which I think is the appropriate level. Uh, and if we do that right, that should be fairly accretive. 
Um, but I don't think you need to think about anything transformational. Um, we're going to stay on strategy. Um, we like the model that we've got in terms of alternatives, which is partnering with folks um, and thinking about our income stream from not just being an LP investor, but being part of the um, management fees coming in, as well as some of the carry. Um, so, you know, don't think of us having to try to do something large scale. Uh, but there, there may be things that we would invest in to tuck in around our core businesses as well to drive future organic growth. Um, but I would say, you know, we're not thinking large-scale M&A at this point. I don't know if Adrian or Judy want to add anything to that. No, nothing to add. That's, uh, that's it. Okay. Okay, that's helpful. Just one other for me. Um, I was wondering if you could help quantify what you consider to be excess capital in the business. And uh, maybe the way I'll approach it is, you know, is there a minimum level of cash that you'd like to have on balance sheet that you're kind of comfortable operating with uh, for working capital purposes where, you know, anything in excess of that should be considered available to be allocated either through, you know, capital return or seeding new strategy, strategies or other uses? Yeah, sure. So I guess I'll take a stab at that. Um, yeah, there obviously is working capital required to run the business, but we don't necessarily need to have it in cash because we do have a, a revolver that we can draw from. But, you know, we probably like to keep, you know, 30 to $50 million of, of cash just for, you know, pay year and bonuses and that kind of thing. But you got to step back and think, you know, we've got zero debt. We've got $94 million in cash at year end. We have $150 million of long-term investment and, you know, we could borrow a couple hundred million dollars and still keep within a reasonable uh, debt to EBITDA. So, you know, with that type of balance sheet, we're not really thinking about, um, you know, keeping enough cash to pay the bills because we just have, you know, so much liquidity. We're obviously going to be, you know, really smart and disciplined about how, how it gets deployed. Um, but we're thinking more so about, the, you know, the, our, our capacity to, to use that to grow. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. All right, that's it for me. Thanks very much. And our next question comes from Jeff Kwan from RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi, uh, good morning. Uh, my first question was just, with the increased focus on uh, ESG, I know your financials kind of talk about what you're doing at the corporate level in various uh, forms on that, but um, can you talk about how you're positioned today, where you may want to evolve over time, both from an, an investment uh, standpoint, but also from a product standpoint? Yeah, hi, Jeff. It's Kevin. I'll, um, I'll take that. You know, I think, as you know, we were um, one of the first firms uh, that signed the PRI here, uh, probably it's going on five years ago now. Um, you know, we have ESG running through all of our investment processes today. Uh, we have get very high grades um, in our PRI uh, annual scores. So at the firm level, um, we've adopted, and not only that, we have a sustainability council that Judy has as president of the firm um, that really uh, is overseeing the firm's uh, view of ESG uh, on top of what the investment view is. Um, in terms of the product landscape, we probably have one of the largest, or I'm sorry, longest tenured um, ESG-specific mandates, uh, probably in North America, um, which has been form performing uh, phenomenally. Um, and as you can imagine, not just investment performance, but also flows. Um, and because of the, the fact that I think that this is a, a theme that we've talked about many times on this call that's not going away. Um, you've seen us launch in the last uh, part of last year. Uh, an ETF that mimics that strategy to some degree. Um, so again, as we start to become more vehicle agnostic, we want to deliver things that are not just funds, but in ETFs, but also in SMAs where that also can be applied. 
And, and so you'll see us uh, bring more and more offer to bear here, um, but it's something that you know we've been focused on for a number of years. Okay. Um, and then um, on the uh, on the OPEX side, um, on a run rate or annualized basis, given what you know the COVID-19 impacts from last year, where I'm assuming higher technology, lower travel, um, like what would have been that net net amount? Um, and then when when you when things eventually normalize, you know how much of that? I'm assuming net savings. Do you expect to come back into the OPEX versus what might be more permanent? Um, lower expenses all else equal. Hey Jeff, it's Adrian. Thanks for the question. Um, yeah, you're, you're you're probably right in the sense that there's there's a savings uh, for us. It might be you know five million dollars uh, related to just reduced activity. But then you're right also in the sense that there's some offsets around technology and that kind of thing. Um, so you know it's it's maybe a few million dollars less than that. That's a sustainable increase over time. And that's also going to depend on behavior changes, right? Like we, it's still left to to be determined, you know, whether we go back to, you know, pre-2020 uh, activity as far as travel and meals and entertainment. So that'll play out over time. But we've basically assumed in the guidance that we gave you that uh, later in the year, we kind of return back to a normal uh, meals and entertainment type of environment. And that's kind of our best guess for 2021. Sure. Okay. And just my last question is, I know you've talked a, a fair bit in terms of the institutional business, in terms of what's going on in the current quarter and then upcoming, but um, what would have been the uh, institutional net sales in Q4, but also uh, for the fiscal 2020 period? You know, Jeff, we're gonna, I'm going to pull that up right now, but we were in net outflow on the institutional business uh, for most of the year last year for that value. Um, Strategy, which was our global core strategy that we talked about earlier on the call. Yeah. Um, we had a couple, a couple of similar type redemptions uh, early on in the year, but that's that's where it was centered, and we think that that's starting to stabilize now, though. As I've said, as you've seen this shift from value, but um, I don't know if Judy or yeah. Adrian has that number. And but I was just going to also comment though that we were repositioning our U.S. business under new leadership, so our sales team now is. Uh, then fully uh, ramped up, and that's where we have uh, quite a, a degree of confidence in the opportunity uh, in the U.S. Um, and so net outflows last year, uh, I actually I apologize, I don't have that exact number, but it was a net outflow number. We can, we can get back to you yeah. for the full year on that, Jeff. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, just the Q4 and the full. It was the same, it was the same strategy, though, that we, that we talked about earlier. Correct. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. As a reminder, if you have a question, please press star then one on your touchtone phone. Our next question comes from Tom McKinnon from BMO. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks very much. Morning. Um, two quick questions here. One, if we look at sort of management uh, and advisory fees as a percentage of AUM, we get the similar story to what you have there on slide nine, that it was uh, higher in the fourth quarter versus the third quarter and certainly higher in the fourth quarter versus the first and second quarters of this year. And I think you had said it was in part due to, um, you know, maybe changes in mix. It seemed like uh, maybe a little bit more in terms of some mutual fund business that had helped that. So how should we be thinking about that, um, that uh, this in terms of basis points going forward? Is it the current mix? Should that stay the same? Um, how do we uh, work that in with, uh, you know, any kind of further fee compression? And then I have a follow-up. Yeah, hey Tom, that's uh, Kevin, and I'll let Adrian follow on that, uh, or Judy. But um, you know, it has been mixed shift. Um, 
we have more of an equity tilt. We've seen uh, we have a number of uh, well-performing strategies right now. Uh, it's a broad set of things that are performing really well, which are attracting sales. Um, so, you know, as people have moved away from fixed income, they've redeployed back into equity. So it is some mixed shift going on there. Um, I still think, you know, when you look at the industry, you know, over the last several years, this is more anecdotal, Tom, um, we haven't seen the big fee cuts that we have seen before uh, in the industry. Um, and so I think that, that has started to level it off. But, I, you know, my gut tells me we should still be thinking one to two basis points. I'd say the last piece is we've seen people starting to shift away from index products, not wholly, but back to active management in here, which will also, you'll see some, some firms, you know, who um, have that, that kind of a, and, and it's not us, we don't do the index um, suite here, but those firms are also going to see a lift in that as, they, as folks move away from their index suite back to an actively managed suite. So there'll be some mix shift for the industry for sure, I think. But Adrian, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on the one or two basis points. Yeah, that's accurate, Kevin. That it's, it's coming from uh, from our mutual funds, and we've had some, you know, really um, successful products. I mean, it's been a very broad uh, um, story as far as which funds are producing the net sales, but they have tended to be, you know, our more differentiated uh, equity type products. And and then we've had some redemptions in in products that have slightly lower uh, fee rates. So I think it's uh, another encouraging trend. Uh, and yeah, I mean, sorry, just to go ahead. Yeah, have... go ahead, Judy. Yeah, just to feed on that, I mean, it really is around, you know, our exposure on the global side and the fact that we've got higher margin products on that side of the business. Uh, our GSG fund is uh, trending very well. Again, performance is helping enormously on that fund, our global select fund, and uh, even the um, convertible debenture fund. So it's been uh, it's been a it's been a good long. Like I said, we've talked about this. The breadth and depth of our of our suite of products that are selling has been very um, Okay, so that sounds like one to two beeps, but uh, if uh, trends shifted to more index and away from active or towards more kind of balanced or uh, fixed income-based funds, then that could be uh, perhaps a little bit more. Um, maybe as a – and then the second question has to do with the share of profit that you got from your JVs in the quarter, $1.6 million. Um, how should we be thinking about that going forward? Um, is that uh, um, a proxy for like a you know 2.8 uh, billion in alternatives, and if you moved it up to 5 billion in alternatives, do we just sort of just keep moving that up accordingly? Yeah, thanks, Tom. It's a uh, it's a little bit difficult um, to model, to be honest with you. So we we are trying to make it a little bit easier for you. And if you look on page five of the MBNA, uh, you know, breaking out. The alternatives business showing what we're earning from the manager versus what we're earning uh, investing in the LPs. And so um, you will see, you know, obviously as the platform gains more scale, you're going to see more of a consistent and, and repeatable amount of profits uh, coming from our interest in the GPs uh, slash managers. But again, and I've, I've explained this a, a few times in the past, just the way the accounting works for alternatives, and this affects all firms that, that have sizable alternatives businesses. You, you know, you have to accrue carry, unrealized carry, uh, as an expense, right? And so that ends up, um, you know, limiting the amount of profit that you can show. At the same time, this unrealized carry, you know, you don't realize the, the income from the carry until it's actually earned, 
so it can kind of create a, create a distorted uh, picture because of, uh, of equity accounting. But one, one of the things you can do is look on our cash flow statement and also note five. And that's going to show you like the cash that we get uh, from the managers. And that might be a, a better way to look at kind of the recurring, uh, you know, income generating power from our, from our interest in these managers. And if you look at note five, you'll see that you know, we received about $3.7 million in cash. Uh, and so that's kind of the, 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 um, the number that I would, I would have you look at. Just keep in mind, though, that's after tax. That's net of everything, right? So it's not an EBITDA. It's, it's as far down on the income statement as you can go. Um, and then that 3.7, obviously, is probably the one that you'll see grow consistently over time as we move towards that $5 billion target. Okay. Thanks for the help. You're welcome. And our next question comes from Graham Writing from TD Securities. Please go ahead. Yeah, just to follow up on, appreciate the color that you gave on the institutional and the mutual fund. How about on the high net worth side and your ETFs, just some color on uh, flows would be appreciated. Sure. I mean, the um, private client business is incredibly stable. Uh, it's close to flat year over year. Um, and, uh, you know, it performs, continues to perform well with, um, steady referral business in terms of uh, new sales coming in. Um, in terms of the ETF, uh, we saw about year-over-year year about a 7% increase on our total AUM. Uh, we're confident about the product offering that we have within that suite of uh, products. As you know, we offer both actively managed and factor-based ETFs. Um, our market-neutral anti-beta strategy is used as a tactical play, and so we'll see a lot more movement in and out of that particular ETF, but it's doing exactly what it's designed to do. Uh, and then we, uh, I think Kevin mentioned that we did uh, just launch uh, a global sustainable growth ETF, which is really uh, trying to harness the opportunity and take advantage of the opportunity that's uh, really the appetite that we're seeing advisors and investors uh, looking for. So we've seen immediate traction on that, and that was just launched uh, last fall. So again, we're looking for some uh, sustainable traction in that space. And, uh, and Graham, it's Kevin, just to follow up on that. You know, we're seeing advisors, again, as we, as our, we have a very broad... Um, set of channels that we're in. So some are fund-based, some are increasingly ETF-based, some are ETF and funds, and some are using SMAs. So we have to be positioned to be um, truly, as I think about it, vehicle agnostic as we head into the future. It'll take us a while to get there. So, But ETFs will play a role in that as, again, offering a capability and letting the advisor pick the wrapper. Okay, I understood. And an SMA, would that come through in your institutional flows, or would you capture that as a, as a retail mutual fund flow? I think, Adrian, those are coming through in retail, correct, Adrian? Uh, so it, it kind of depends uh, what report you're looking at. So, um, you know, if it's we usually, give a... So it's usually ahead, institutional. The SMA usually does show within our institutional numbers. Yeah, if you're looking at our, our MD&A, that's what's going to come through. Yeah. That's it for me. Thank you. Thank you. We have no further questions at this time. I will turn the call back over to Mr. Basaraba for closing remarks. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Operator. Um, so thank you very much for, for joining the call. And you can find the uh, um, conference call and webcast archive on our webcast. And we'll, uh, we'll uh, look forward to seeing you again when we report our first quarter results. Thank you very much. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's conference. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect.
Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.